Welcome to episode 30 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. In this episode, we're going to conclude our recent series on the history of the Jews in France. This is actually part six and the last part of that series. And we're going to backtrack slightly to mention that the first republic in France emerged in September of 1792 in the throes of the revolution and lasted until May of 1804 with the declaration of the first empire under Napoleon. Now, that's not a very long time, less than 12 years. France is now on its fifth republic, but it hasn't been an uninterrupted series of republics. There was a first, second, third, fourth, and now a fifth. But they were interrupted by things like the empire, the restoration of the monarchy, the commune, all kinds of other things. So once again, we find the paradox to which I've referred before of France as being, on the one hand, a motor of change and innovation, and on the other hand, a deeply conservative place. That being said, however, in France, as in other places in the world, historical memory seems to go deeper and last much longer than it does here in the United States. And the 20th century in France was largely shaped by three events, what the French called the Great War, we call World War I, and then sort of Act II of the same war, in a sense, which we call World War II, And then, for the French, the loss of empire, and particularly the loss of Algeria. Hard to overstate what a great trauma that is for the French, and how even, what, more than 50 years later, it remains a subject that's largely taboo, and that is not discussed in polite society for fear of causing fights, actually. So, Let's look a little bit at these three events and how they impacted the Jewish communities in France. For the Great War, it's important to know that in France, every village, however tiny, has a monument to French men and women who died in the war. And small children walking to school every day pass this monument, and it includes names of uncles, cousins, friends of their parents, whatever, so that in a very real way that is much less true in the United States, the Great War, also known as World War I, lives on vividly in the memory of every French citizen. The treaty that theoretically ended World War I was called the Treaty of Versailles, but that was an umbrella term for a group of treaties that were concluded with each defeated power so that the Allies negotiated separately in different palaces and beautiful palatial settings around Paris within, let's say, an hour's drive of Paris. And they concluded separate treaties with Germany, with Austria, with Hungary, etc., etc. The result of these treaties was so bad that this so-called peace led almost inexorably to the second act, which was World War II, and which is much more vivid to us here in the United States than World War I is. But the United States entered both wars 
only belatedly and very reluctantly. It took attacks on American citizens. And in the case of World War II, it took an attack, a dramatic attack on American soil before the U.S. entered the war. And in both cases, the majority of the French public recognizes that although they had allies in Europe, it wasn't the allies who saved their bacon, it was the United States. And I want to share with you a vivid example of how this recollection affects modern behavior, although the story I'm about to tell you occurred maybe 30, 35 years ago. Nonetheless, it's quite revealing because fully 40 years after the liberation of France by the Allies who landed on D-Day on the Normandy beaches and then marched towards Paris and ultimately towards Berlin, there was a war, a brief war, against Libya, which involved American bombers and fighter jets overflying European soil from their home base in the south of England. The direct route to do this would have been to fly over France. But France as a sovereign nation, and one that often defines its sovereignty as defiance of what the United States would maybe wish, France denied overflight rights to U.S. aircraft. So our pilots had to fly a longer route over Spain, bombed the Gulf of Sirte, turned back and went back, whatever. It was um, something which many French people who remembered the role America played in liberating their country at the end of World War II were very ashamed of. And I lived in a neighborhood that was sort of a bougie neighborhood, the 7th arrondissement, if you know Paris at all. You could see the Eiffel Tower from my living room window. And I went every week to the same dry cleaner because as an embassy employee, I had to wear suits and ties and dress shirts and they frequently needed cleaning. And it was a little ma and pa establishment, not a chain, not part of a big mechanized thing. Everything was done on the premises. And the day after this bombing attack, which the French made more difficult for us, the old man who owned the cleaning shop said, Mr. Price, I'm so ashamed of my country. I cannot take payment from you this week. Consider this cleaning service, this week at least, as a small token of our country's appreciation for the way you helped us in World War II, and as a small gesture of apology for our behavior today. I obviously found that incident remarkable for many reasons, not least of which was how unlikely it is that such a story could happen in the U.S. But more importantly, it reminded me that among older French people, it took a very long time to get over the multiple traumas inflicted not only during the Nazi occupation of much of France and certainly of Paris, but also the years afterwards when everyone accused everybody else of being either a collaborator or an informer or a traitor. And everybody also at the same time claimed to be a freedom fighter and a hero of the resistance. And these accusations and counter accusations went on for years in a period of great instability. In fact, at the end of the war, when the Iron Curtain first went down over Eastern Europe, the French Communist Party, the PCF, was a major force in French politics. And there was even a chance at one point that they might be the dominant party. 
So that receded fairly quickly. The French used that a lot during the era of McCarthy in the early 50s. But as the threat of a communist takeover in France receded, the ranks of the party receded as well. So that by the time I was working in France in the late 80s, I don't think that the PCF counted for more than 2 or 3% of the electorate, and they were considered a fringe group. But that's also once true of the Green Party, which has grown significantly since then. The French Communist Party keeps shrinking and is no longer a major force to be reckoned with, although there are a few town halls and a few seats in Parliament that are held by them, but it's become just a footnote. What is true is that France in general, and Paris in particular, always saw itself as a terre d'asile, a land of asylum, open to refugees for whatever reasons, political, economic, and particularly Jews in the aftermath of World War II, who were often homeless, who had been deported multiple times, who may have been imprisoned in concentration camps and barely escaped with their lives. All kinds of people from Eastern and Central Europe found refuge in France in the aftermath of the war. And the French Jewish community, and particularly that of Paris, grew dramatically. And internationally acclaimed Jews, who were neither born nor lived out their lives nor died in France, but at one point or another in the years after the war spent significant time there, include the famous Nobel Prize winner Elie Wiesel, for example, and many, many others. So you have this swelling of the Jewish community, especially in Paris, from essentially displaced persons in Eastern Europe. And you have, at the same time, a France which is slowly crawling out of the period of recriminations and who did what and who's to blame for the, the sort of shameful record of France during World War II and the, the real lack of resistance to the Nazi plans to deport the Jews. France crawled out of that through the 50s and the 60s. They still had General de Gaulle as a leader who was lionized by and large until they began to lose their empire. And this was extremely difficult. And it's hard to overstate what a deep trauma losing Algeria was. Algeria is almost directly south of France. And Algerians had been considered French citizens. So anybody who wanted to leave Algeria when the French were essentially thrown out could leave and settle in France because they were already French citizens. And this created particularly in the south of France, the regions closest physically to Algeria. This created a large urban underclass of people who may or may not have been a visible minority, but by virtue of their Islamic beliefs and practices and their Islamic dress, which was less distinctive in those days than it is today, were a very visible minority and a source of social problems, which grew from the 60s when they began to the late 80s and caused the emergence of a far-right party called the National Front, which was first headed up by a man named Jean-Marie Le Pen, 
who the first time he ran for president actually got a very respectable 16% of the popular vote. His daughter now runs the party, Marine, and she has renounced some of her father's more extreme positions. He was a Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite, sort of a neo-Nazi, and she is none of those things, but still far right. And her party does even better now than it did when her father first founded it in the late 80s. Now, the question is, how does anti-Semitism in France change from what we saw, let's say, in the 1890s, which was very similar to the anti-Semitism that we found in Berlin or Vienna, to what we saw in the 1990s, when it was quite a different thing. It was a, it was a whole different genre of anti-Semitism because most of it did not come from people that other French people would consider French. Most of it came from North African Muslims who had French citizenship and spoke the French language, but were not, in the eyes of their French compatriots, true Frenchmen and French women. And the horrible kinds of attacks that we've seen early in this century, where little old ladies get thrown out of windows of their apartments in Paris and trampled to death in the streets. In many cases, these little old ladies have been Holocaust survivors, which makes it a double irony because they came to a place where they finally thought they were safe. And then they're attacked in their homes by young Muslim males. So this is a hugely complicated problem for France because France created the first Universal Declaration of Human Rights. France believes, at least nominally, in freedom of religion, freedom of cultural expression, etc., etc., on the one hand. On the other hand, a vastly disproportionate percentage of violent crimes are committed by recent Muslim immigrants from North African countries. And the French need to find a solution to this problem before it destroys their society. And meanwhile, a number of Jews have reacted by simply emigrating. They said, no, this is too much. We didn't come here for this. We're moving either to Israel or to French-speaking parts of Canada or Switzerland or even the U.S., where you will find a certain percentage of French Jews who've arrived in the past two or three decades as a result of this latest, most malevolent form of anti-Semitism in France, and particularly in the bigger cities, both north and south. I mean, Marseille has plenty of North Africans and plenty of anti-Semitic violence. What we hear about mostly happens in Paris because the international press coverage of Paris is so much better. But it's not limited to Paris by any means. I wish I could end this on a happier note, but I would say that France needs desperately to struggle with both halves, the sort of the origin of the problem of all these North Africans and their own unique brand of racism, which doesn't have anything to do with skin color, but does have a lot to do with religion and culture. On that note, I leave you and we leave France. And when we return for our next episode, it will be a totally different part of the world. I wish you all the best. And to those of you who celebrate holidays at the end of December, may you have joyful holidays and enjoy them with your families in good health and good fellowship. Thank you.